0: Welcome folks to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam kasten Smith, and I am your host today. And joining me is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries, Color Commentator. What other roles do you want today, Will? Extraordinaire. Extra- he's, yeah, all those things, extraordinaire. And so we are going to be pressing on into a brand new series. We are, we've done a series before on Genesis 1 to 11 which goes from creation to the Tower of Babel. And that story, as, as we're going to talk about as we launch into the life of Abraham, is really, really important in setting up the ethics of the world against the ethics of the kingdom of God, which you'll see starting to be demonstrated by Abraham today. Uh, but for the next several weeks, we're not going to make promises on how long or short this series <laughs> is going to be because, uh, well, we, we like to talk. <laughs> so, we're going to be going through the life of Abraham, which is a monumental figure in the Bible. When you hear Abraham, what's the first thing that comes to your mind, Will? Father of many nations. Yeah. Father of many nations, the father of the faith, the song. You yeah. know, Father Abraham had many sons, you know, now that's going yeah. on in everybody's head. And we're going to talk about why is he called that? Yeah. Like, because he becomes a critical figure in the the Old Testament. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, there's three characters that are cited more than anyone else from the Old Testament, and that's Abraham is one of them, Moses, and David. They each become the three big figures that are cited by the New Testament apostles.
1: Yeah, and Abraham, I think, yeah, we're going to get going into it, but Abraham's fascinating just because of Genesis is a wild book, I'm Mm -hmm. learning, and I think we kind of put that down for a second, and I think when you're reading through Genesis, like, we will in explicit detail and
0: talking about every little thing, I think it's just fascinating. Yeah, I I remember going back, gosh, probably 10, 15 years now, um, and the son of a friend of mine went over to Ukraine where he was engaged to a woman, and he ended up dying over there. And I spoke with his widow or soon-to-be widow or whatever that would be Yeah. in that case. And she was wanting to know about heaven. She wasn't a Christian. And so we talked about heaven and the faith and everything else. And she says, you know, how can I learn more? And she didn't have access to kind of the ordinary books that I would normally give yeah. to somebody. But she had access to a Bible. So I said, I want you to read Genesis, and I want you to read the Gospel of John, and then we'll talk about it. And so we Skyped on a phone call uh, a couple of weeks later, and she was like, "You know, I love your Jesus. He is beautiful. He's beautiful. You know. Sorry for the accent. <laughs> yeah, he, stuff. <it's> he's, <laughs> he's he's beautiful. But this Genesis, how is this in your holy book? How is this? And I mean, because when you stop for a moment, and because we get used to the stories, but." When you see, I mean, even in in today's passage, you know, when you see here's the father of the faith and some of the things that he's going to do, you're like, wait a minute, he's like, he's our hero? Like, well, no, but he points to our hero. He's our hero by faith, but he's a very flawed hero, which the Bible gives us a lot of flawed heroes. But as we love to say, there is one unfailing hero. And none of the characters in the Bible apart from Jesus, Are it. (laughs) You know, they give us a lot of ways not to behave. So we're going to pick up in Genesis 11, and we find out in verse 27 that Terah, who's Abraham's father, became the father of Abram, that's going to be Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot, who we'll find in Genesis 13 next week. And while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur in the land of the Chaldeans. Now, if you imagine. Uh, the the Fertile Crescent or Sumer or the ancient Babylon, like right where the Persian Gulf comes up, Ur was one of the cities that was right where the Tigris and Euphrates come together. It was an ancient city, very, very wealthy city. We've uncovered it. We know there's Ziggurat, a huge city, lots of commerce, um, but it gets destroyed by the Elamites right around the time that you would expect this to happen. They bail out of Ur because Ur is getting destroyed, it turns out. And so they leave there, um, and it says Abram's wife was Sarai. And then it tells us a very, very, very important thing. It says, now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And so this, like if, if you were reading this in the first, you know, back in the ancient days when when Moses first gives us the story of Genesis, there's a lot that would have popped out to you. So one of the things that we know from archaeology is that ancient Ur had a god that they held above all other gods in the Babylonian pantheon. And that god was Nana, spelled N-A-N-N-A. And it, it make, you want to say Nana. Yeah, not your grandma. <laughs> and it makes you want to think of a goddess. But this is the god of fertility, a very powerful god in the ancient world. And so what does a god of fertility do? Why why is that so important? Well, in the ancient world, you wanted that god because it was really important that you had a large family yeah. for your survival. It was really important that you had crops to grow. It was really important that your herds reproduced. And so a god of fertility was always in the ancient world one of the more important gods. And so Abram, which his name even means Exalted father, before his name gets changed to Abraham, which will mean father of many, Abram or Abram literally means exalted father. So I want you to imagine Abraham is becoming an old man with a name that means exalted father in a land that values fertility above all else. Like your God of that city is all about fertility. And here you are, and you're unable to have a child. So even your name is a constant reminder of the shame that you can't have children. In a land that puts having children as the chief important thing in life, your number one God is all about fertility. And this is like a shame that's in Abram's face his entire life. Yeah, they probably were kind of excited to get out of her. Like if you're, <laughs> you think. If yeah. you're Sarai at this point, <laughs> you're like... All right,
1: I could go to a place where their God is not a God of fertility because it's not working for me. Like, this whole land is not my scene. I'm obviously an outcast. I'm not wanted. This God,
0: whatever he does, he's not doing it for me. Mm -hmm. Totally. So that would have been like, uh, can we go somewhere that doesn't put such a big emphasis on this? And so here's here's the bad news is in verse 31 it says, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians, to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And so here's something else we know. Haran, which in Akkadian means crossroads because it's another it's a commercial city, it also had a god. Guess, guess what the god was?
1: probably a god of fertility at
0: this point it's the same god like so here's nana again oh, <laughs> so, no. so you got abraham and sarah who are like all right finally maybe some of the heat will get out. and they come to another city and they believe that it's it's very likely that the people who escaped out of ur when the elamites came and destroyed it actually founded the cult of nana in haran and it became chief there too so you get the impression terah Abram's father is very, very big and very, very loyal to yeah. this particular God, that when he leaves Ur, he either goes to a city that celebrates this same God or he founds helps to found the cult that worships this same God. And so, again, here's Abraham yeah. with the shame of the name, with the shame of this cult, and he's growing in age, and he's beyond childbearing years at this point. And so it's like a settled reality that this is who you are. Your life ends with you. There is no legacy. There's no children for you. Um, and it says, Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. And so this is where Abraham's life gets turned upside down. Starting in, in chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it said, The Lord had said to Abram, I need to pick it. It's either Abram or Abram. Like I feel like the Hebrews Abram, but I'm just Abram Abram, because that's how I'm just going with
1: Abraham until we get to that point.
0: So (laughs) that's where I'm at. All right. So verse one, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, you gotta imagine this would have been wild. Like Abram does not have any relationship with God prior to this. His family had been worshiping all these pagan gods. They've been going to all the rituals and the ziggurats and everything else. And now you have the one true God, Yahweh, who suddenly comes to Abraham and says, I want you to leave it all. I want you to leave your country, your people, your father's household, and just go to a land that I'm not even gonna tell you what it is or where it is. I just want you to go. Radical.
1: Yeah, and at this point, if I'm Abram and Sarai, I don't have much trust in gods at this point. No. So, even as this God enters the scene, who we know looking back is the one true God, Mm -hmm. like, they're like, we've been worshiping these mute idols for so long and I'm still not pregnant. Right. Yeah. This God who I've prayed for, like you said, done the rituals, I've done it all, I've been good at this point, hasn't met me in anything. So, Mm it would be shocking at this point to actually hear a God who's not mute, who's active in
0: their life to be like, oh, you're talking to me. Yeah. A a God who actually responds, who's real. Yeah. And listen to the promises that God lays down to Abram and imagine, you know, like you're talking about, you've you've been serving, you know, Nana your whole life and it's been utter failure. Like he's never come through, like to your shame. You feel forsaken by the God you worship. You feel left out. You feel like he has shamed you to your entire community. And now God comes in contrast to that and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Like, Mm. whoa, (laughs) you know, he's not saying I'm going to give you a child, like I'm going to make you a nation like the people who come out of your line. It's going to be a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then here comes the great promise that extends to us and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now there's so much that's going on with this particular promise, right? If you, so God's selection of the Messiah keeps getting whittled down as you go through the Old Testament, right? Because at the beginning, he just says, you know, there's going to be a seed of the woman. That's yeah. the promise that's given when Adam and Eve are around. And so, okay, it's going, we're told that's going to be a male, you know, and it's going to be born of a woman. And so it could be anyone. Like you look around, every pregnancy has the potential of the Messiah. And then you, you know, fast forward. And the you get particular lines that are, you know, Noah's line. Obviously, it gets whittled down. Everybody <laughs> comes through Noah, yeah. but then again, it's it could be all of humanity. I mean, God seems to give some favor to Shem, the the son of Noah, but it doesn't say the Savior is going to come through him. But now, when you get to Abraham, it's the first time that God has taken all of humanity. Like it could be anywhere, any nation, any anyone, and He says, "No, no, no, this one. The world is going to be blessed." through you. And now all of a sudden, you get you whittle it down and you see the saviors coming through this line and a lot of humanity. You can start like, okay, it's not going to the saviors not coming through their lines. Now it's coming through Abraham. But I want you to also notice this chapter is coming right on the heels of the tower of babel. And if you remember the tower of babel, like everything that they did in Genesis 11 with the tower of babel, is the anti kingdom ethic? It's all about this world, you know. If, if you go back and you read the language, you know it says, "We." Why do you want to build the tower? It says, "Let us build for ourselves a city." So this this is their kingdom, right? A tower that reaches to the heavens, so that they can speak with the authority of God. If you remember that episode, so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so in that ethic, you find like different motivations, and here they are. One, it's our kingdom. We're going to build for ourselves a city. The next one, the tower reaches into heaven so that the king could get up and speak on behalf of God with authority. They want power. The next one, well, we want to make a name for ourselves because it's all about my glory. I want people to hear my name and go, oh, they're amazing. And then lastly, so that we're not scattered over the face of the whole earth. Well, that's in direct rebellion, if you remember, to the, the Genesis mandate of, of the creation, right? What were Adam and Eve commanded to do? They were to go and subdue the whole earth. They were to spread the garden to the ends of the earth. They weren't just supposed to stay in the Garden of Eden. They were to go out and subdue the earth. And so now you have these people saying, well, we're not doing that. We're not leaving. We're comfortable here. We like it here. We're not scattering. We're not going. And so when he comes to Abraham, everything about Abraham is in contrast to Babel. God comes and says, go. (laughs) You know, doesn't even give him a destination, just says, go. You're going to be scattered. And Abraham says, done, right? He says, and this is cool, Abraham's not interested in making a name for himself. He hears God say, I will make your name great. And so it's it's by grace that he's receiving this promise. So it's about his name. It's about, you know, Hebrews tells us that Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and architect was God. So it's about God's kingdom and God's city. It's, it's all about his name. It's about his blessing. And so the ethics of this world, the Babel ethics, are my kingdom, my will, my name, my glory, my power. And the kingdom. Ethics of the kingdom of God that you see in Father Abraham are, no, 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 your kingdom, your name, your will. And so when Jesus teaches us how to pray, the first half of the Lord's prayer says, you need to adopt that ethic. When you come before the Lord, you recognize our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, name, not mine, your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. That's what you're praying. Set aside my need for my kingdom, my name, my will and submission to wanting to see your kingdom, your name, your will exalted, no matter what that might mean for me.
1: Yeah, I think just the even the graciousness of God if he's going to make his kingdom come into this world. I mean, these two are the last ones you would chosen. <laughs> I mean, like we talked about, at this point, he could have picked a couple other people that the line would have been would have been clear, mm-hmm. would have been secure, would have all worked out in the end. You could have tra- traced it all the way back to no, and it would have been fine. But here we have these two, mm-hmm. old, just not making it happen, still barren, still wondering, I can't be a great nation because I'm, I'm not even a father yet. Yeah. Like, how is this going to happen? Yeah. And even to be Abram and Sarah in that moment and being like, oh my gosh, All this mute God who never heard me or saw me, now there's this real God who doesn't just have the power to do it, but he sees me exactly where I am. Mm-hmm. And he's gracious. He, he's kind. He's compassionate. He's saying, I see that you're barren. I know that's a huge issue for you. I know that that's been a struggle your whole life. It's been shame. It's been everything. And I'm going to give
0: you that. Mm-hmm. But I want you to start all over. Yeah. I want, I want you to, to leave everything that you've grown comfortable with. I want you to surrender everything that defines who you are right now and I want you to come grab hold of me and watch what I do. Yeah, I'll give you a name, Abraham. I'll give you a legacy. I'll make you into a great nation. And, you know, and by the way, I'll be the one who blesses and defends you. I'm going to be the one who protects you against those who curse you. Like, so you have the living God. Like, I love how you're talking about, you know, these mute idols made of metal that he's been just totally decimated and discouraged by his whole life. And now he's got the living God speaking to him, and he's like, I'm ready to do big things with you, but you gotta grab hold and trust. Mm-hmm. And Abraham does, like he he's he does, it. next verse. So Abraham went, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <just laughs> as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, his nephew. Uh, which by the way, like probably, my guess is, Abraham even out of the gates is kind of hedging his bets cuz it's like okay well his dad died so if I need a son I got Lot yeah you know I'll pass on everything to him you know so let's bring him along and for the journey but I'm sure that's in Abram's mind before God comes through on his promise like okay Lot will be the guy he'll he'll be my guy yeah, he'll carry it through yeah so Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And that's, you know, people try to say, well, maybe they had different calendars. Maybe they, no, he's old. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's, he's old and his wife is only 10 years behind him. So it, post-menopausal, the, the chance of children in the natural world, according to natural rules, is out the window. Like, not going to happen for Abraham and Sarai. And that is intentional. Why? Because the whole point of God's promise to bring forth children isn't to say, okay, well, let's figure out some naturalistic maybe maybe she had a spare egg that just didn't get released or you know, she like, froze them. There you go. Cryogenics. There you go. <laughs> no, it's 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 meant to make you realize that we serve a supernatural God who brings life where life is utterly impossible. Mm-hmm. Utterly impossible. The same God who raises Jesus from the dead after three days. Is the God who can take a womb that is utterly barren and bring life. It's the same God who can take a virgin where there's just no possibility of life and bring life to it. And that is what we're to we don't come across this and you know, like like it's trying to scratch all of our skeptic like the whole point of this is it's impossible. Yeah. You shouldn't read this and go, um, oh, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little skeptical of that. You should be. That's the point. God overcomes the impossible here. So in verse 5, it says, he took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah as Shechem at the time the Canaanites were in the land. And the Canaanites, you know, there's multiple versions and tribes of Canaanites, but these are really wicked, wicked, wicked tribes, um, and they do some really awful things. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he's walking around in the territory of of Israel that will ultimately where Joshua will lead the people back in after the slavery in Egypt, and they'll take the land. But God is telling Abram, you know, in those days, to your offspring, I will give this land. He built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and he there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. And here you see it again. That's that's another way of saying like revival has struck. You know, he's calling on the name of the Lord. You see that earlier in Genesis. he You know, people calling on the name of the Lord. And so we're, again, Babel, let's make a name for ourselves. What is Abram doing? I'm calling on the name of the Lord. I want his name to be lifted high. And so Abram set out and continued toward the Negev, which is in the southern part of Israel. It's desert in Hebrew. That word Negev literally means desert. It's there, There's nothing there. Call it what
1: it is. I think it is interesting that for the first time we see altars of God going up publicly in foreign lands with foreign gods. Mm-hmm. You know, we have Abraham kind of like forging this pathway of he's walked into the unknown in a culture that doesn't know this god that doesn't want this god that's worshiping a bunch of other gods and he's proclaiming like no uh, he's kind of like resurrecting those places like hey hmm. old gods might have been worshipped here but now the one true living god through abraham's journey is coming into these lands and Abraham, he's not hiding it mm-hmm. you know he's he's very trusting cuz like you said he doesn't know much about this god other than this promise and this command and here he is going to all these places like resurrecting altars, like the one true living God has been here because his
0: people have been here. It's good. You know, the last time, it's in it's in Genesis 8, the last time that we find somebody building an altar, it's after the worldwide judgment, and God has just entered in this covenant with Noah. He gives the rainbow. He says he's never going to judge the, the earth again in that way, and what does Noah do? He builds an altar to the Lord, and he begins making sacrifices on it and worshiping the Lord and it's bizarre to me you know it, it makes you cuz cuz you see this gap between noah and then all of a sudden you have the tower of babel and everybody's in immediate rebellion the sons of noah are off to the races again everybody's creating these different gods abram is born into that culture where you had you know a god for everything under the sun and all these very wicked religious practices starting to emerge not just through the regions of Babylon but in this Canaanite territory even worse like you know child sacrifice and yeah. really really gross awful things were happening prevalently in sexual worship and it was wild it was crazy town you know yeah and here you have Abram and it's like you're right he's he's reclaiming worship but it's the first picture so you see humanity goes immediately back to evil after mm-hmm. Noah you know they totally spit in God's face and they run back to all their paganism and here you have Abraham who you get the sense is like alone in this. Yeah. You know, like where where's everyone else? Where, where are the descendants of Shem that are, you know, the pockets or the remnant and they might be there but you get very, very distinctly the idea that Abraham's alone in this. There's not a lot of people he comes across that are like, all right, Yahweh, amen, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you don't think about it how it just all kind of fell off. Mm-hmm. Like there is that like Almost like the intertestamental period where there's just darkness and quiet. Mm-hmm. It very much has that feel to me, and so then things get real, right? So, so that was the first nine verses of chapter twelve, but now it's like you know, if we could have God come to us, right, and say, "Hey, hey, hey, Will, I'm with you. Like yeah. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you through you. You know." He's going to do all these things, and I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to show you. And so, if you're Abram, you're thinking, All right, man, like (laughs) this is awesome. I'm going to go where he's telling me to go. It's going to be, you know, God's on my side. There's going to be blessing upon blessing. Things are going to go easy. I'm going to start having kids. That's what I would be thinking, right? Yeah. Like, here's God's promise. Like, all right, well, let's make it happen. I did my part. You do your part. Except I love verse 10 because it it jives with our experience, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, God says, hey, here's a promise. Abraham obeys, goes to the land. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. what not (laughs) so linear anymore right i was just in the fertile crescent like haran had great crops we were right on you know the tigris euphrates like this was awesome commerce was great now you've brought me to this land that that you said you know you're gonna bless me and there's famine in the land desert famine sounds like nothing worse yeah okay so yeah you go down to the negev it's bad there you come back up and now there's famine even in the places where there could have been crops and so Abram does something that is going to be a pattern that you're you're meant to pick up on as you read the Old Testament. We'll see it again if we ever get to the other patriarchs. But it says there was famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there a while because the famine was severe. Now, Egypt in the Old Testament, this is the first time that we see this emerge. Egypt was actually... One of the sons, it's the name of one of the sons of Ham, one of Noah's sons. And it, the name in Hebrew is Mizraim, which is still their name for the Egypt today. If you go to the genealogy, it's listed there. But it's like it's considered like, eh, this is this was not so great a place. And even more than that, Egypt all throughout the Bible is always associated with death and bondage. You know, it, it, Isaiah says, don't go down to Egypt for help. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Every time people, you know, get in the alliances with Egypt, it always backfires on them. That's where the slavery happened. You know, it's their king is crowned with the image of a serpent. You know, everything about Egypt is meant to make you go. Mm, this place is absolutely infatuated with death. When you think of Egypt, what comes to your mind? Mummies. Mummy. What is a Mummy celebrated dead guy right let's
1: keep death around a little bit longer
0: (laughs) and preserve them for resurrection but they're like obsessed with death what was their great bible that emerged in the days like it's the book of the dead and the pyramids and everything else about egyptian culture is obsessed with death and so now you have abram who's the child of 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 god you know father abraham he's been adopted he's given all these covenants and it seems like God has failed on his promise, and so where does he run? He runs down to the kingdom of death and slavery. Mm. So don't, don't miss this, to live there for a while. Now, what you're going to find is every time somebody runs down to Egypt to be blessed in place of trusting God, they always end up getting a consequence, and God rescues them. Mm. But you, you, if you fast forward to Genesis 26, there's another famine where Isaac is confronted with a severe famine and God comes to him and actually says, do not go down to Egypt. And Isaac's like, but there's no food here. And he stays and he's faithful and God gives him crops a hundredfold, anyone else. And then Jacob faces a severe famine and he's like, "Uh," and he sends his sons down to Egypt. You know how that turns out. They settle in Egypt, they get food, but then all of their descendants get enslaved for 400 years. So, Every time you go down to Egypt for provision, it's no bueno, no bueno. All right. So as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife and they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So say you're my sister so that I'll be treated well for your sake and that my life will be spared because of you. So how are you feeling about Abraham now? I, I have a question about yeah. this.
1: Was he right? Like, would they have killed him? I'm not I'm not condoning what he's about to do. <laughs> don't. <laughs> Way to go, Will. I am in this. Sorry, I am in Sorry the, Morgan. I am in the story in this moment. No other consequences outside of that.
0: But would they have done that? Yes. Yeah. If they want. We don't understand how Christian ethics changed the world, particularly in this region of the world. You know, like remember in the story of Ruth, Boaz has to tell the guys not to abuse her when she's out picking. Yeah, like
1: leave her alone. Yeah. We, we kind of see as like don't pester, but it's like, no,
0: no, don't do awful things to her. Correct. Because she doesn't have a man to protect her. So it was just it was dog eat dog. Ooh. It was it was you took what you wanted. If you were stronger, you took it it was a very very wicked culture and so when Abra- isaac is going to say the same thing when yeah. you get to isaac's life so this is a common concern okay. if you have a wife that's prized that someone else wants they'll they'll knock you off to take her and and by the way women at this period in history were seen as commodities yep. i mean there was it wasn't you know equal in dignity or you know anything like that and so he's got a very real concern that somebody might take her the, the crazy thing to me is she's 65 you know abraham's 75 she's 65 they're going down to egypt and he's like man you're you're so attractive you know that they may kill me to take you and so it's like it does make you wonder like all right way, way to go they're, they're taking care of themselves yeah, so what we know
1: is sarah is very pretty mm-hmm. and abram's not much of a fighter
0: Abraham is he's cavalier. worried about his yeah.
1: even he's worried about his skills at this stage in his life. You know, he's like, I don't know if I can fend off anybody else.
0: <laughs> That's right. OK, so but then you see like the weird thing is you have Abraham he shows cowardice here. But then we'll see in two chapters, he's a ferocious warrior, you know, when it comes to going and defending Lot. Lot gets kidnapped and he he's like, I'll risk my life to go rescue Lot. But Sarah, he's like, eh, you know, just. Tell them you're my sister. Like, I, they, they can take you, but I don't I don't want them to hurt me. It's bizarre. You see, Abraham is a very complex character. You know, when we read Bible stories, and that's one of the things that I love about the Bible, is when we read yeah. the Bible stories, there's so often where we come to a character and, and we're like, oh, okay, he's good, he's noble, he's faithful. Look, he just left the land. He's, he's faithful to God, he's listening to the promises, and he goes, and then immediately it'll button hook you yeah. <laughs> with some some crazy story where he's about to do what we're going to read in a moment. And you're like, wait a minute, is he good or evil? And then you get to the next chapter, and you're like, oh, he's wow. back. You know, he's back. This he's is the good the guy, guy. We know, yeah. And and then you fast forward just just a little bit, and you're like, oh, wait, no, that's pretty atrocious. That maybe he is evil. And the reality is, is we want a caricature of what it means to be a godly person, and the Bible doesn't give it to us yeah. because we're not caricatures, right? We have moments where we do things that are pretty admirable and pretty virtuous, and then in the next breath. The thoughts that go through our minds or the actions that we do or the words that we say, it's like, wow, that doesn't look very much like a person of God. And yet the point of this is the whole point of this story, the whole point of all the patriarchs, not to blow the ending, is that when you're reading this and you're expecting to find Abraham as the hero, you you leave going, well, this is really conflicting. I'm not sure what to make of this because one moment I like him and the next moment I hate him. And it only intensifies when you get to Jacob, who's a real scoundrel. <laughs> But the stunning part of this that we're supposed to recognize is that despite the peaks and despite the valleys, God never leaves. God is always faithful to Abraham. He never takes his promise back. He presses through. He 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 redeems all of Abraham's mess. He protects Abraham's bride when Abraham doesn't. Like that's the point of these stories. God is always faithful through the roller coaster. Even to people where you're like, God, stop! Like he doesn't deserve it. No, he doesn't. Neither yeah. do you. Yeah, you know, that's that's kind of the point. And so he's like, All right. So you tell him you're my sister. And by the way, we're told that in reality she is like a half sister or something. And we think, or I think, if you go back I and well, I don't know what he's about to say, so I don't. I might not think this. <laughs> yeah, when I say we, I mean <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah, somewhere someone agrees with me somewhere. Uh, But in the ancient world, the father of the man was responsible for going out and finding a bride to betroth to the son, right? And so in this particular culture, if you go back and you look at like the Er Ur-Namu law codes, which would have been the law of the land where Abram lives, we still have these law codes, which is really helpful to understand what the culture looked like at the time. And it brings a lot of light to the biblical stories, but... In that legal code, one of the things that you find is fathers that go out and actually adopt girls when they're young for the purpose of training them up in the household so that they understand the culture of the house with the purpose of eventually setting up the adopted daughter with the natural born son. And so it's I think it's really likely that Sarah was actually raised up in Terrace household as an adopted daughter and then betrothed to Abraham. And in some sense, she is... You know, like an adopted sister. It's possible. Weird. <laughs> kind of makes sense, though. But yeah, I yeah. mean, in, weird, not yeah. in a weird way, but it is weird. Because it, you know, it does say that she is his sister in another spot. So, anyway, so when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. So he was right. Like, here they go. There you go. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. And this is where you're like, all right, Abram, like, come on, dude and again she's that beautiful that it got to Pharaoh very quickly yeah. like they, everyone in town was like whoa Pharaoh's gotta see her yeah which also means like if yeah. there's a number of things here because life expectancy back then is bad but then you also have to imagine personal hygiene the ability to keep up your appearance I mean you're like you're gonna look pretty ragged living out in the wilderness they've been traveling a lot a lot a lot of a lot travel, of travel. So the fact like this also shows you that Abraham came from a family that was very wealthy, that could take care of themselves, that had access to hygiene and all the stuff to where when she's 65 years old, which is way beyond life expectancy back then, that she's still beautiful. She's been well cared for. And that would have been unique. It would have definitely caught the eye of people back then when they saw somebody like Sarah. And so Pharaoh's like, I, I would like to meet her. Right. And here comes the gross part. Abraham doesn't fight. Ugh. You know, here's here's your wife. This is, you know, God's promise is to come through you and her. Yeah, like she's a part of it. It's not yeah. like this promise isn't working without her. <laughs> yeah, like the whole promise, God is going to bless all the nations through your descendant, right? And there goes the woman who carries the womb, who carries the promise walking into to the harem and chambers of Pharaoh and Abraham sits on his hands. And it says, even to make it even more gross, it said Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and male and female servants hang on to that. Mm. And camels. So here you have Abraham who's basically yeah. a pimp, right? Yeah, it feels worse That's it's transactional. It's gross. Well, the good news is Pharaoh will never have an opportunity to sleep with her because the Lord intervenes. Where Abram fails as a husband, God says, "Uh, no, this isn't happening. (laughs) And so it says in verse 17, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. And so right away, this is a picture of what God is going to do with the plagues. Right? And when, when you get to Moses, here you have God's bride, the people of Israel, who are enslaved in the land of Egypt, and Pharaoh begins to mistreat them, and all the prayers go up to God. And what does God do? God, again, you know, 500 years after Abram, is going to inflict serious diseases and plagues upon Pharaoh and his household. Why? So that his bride, the people of Israel, could be released from Pharaoh. And here he's kind of doing the same thing. Here's Abram's wife who is being kept captive in the harem of Pharaoh and God unleashes plagues to free his people. And by the way, when the Israelites leave Egypt, they leave with plunder because it says the the Egyptians were favorably disposed to the Israelites and so they gave them gold and silver and clothing. Well, in this case, Abram, who is already fairly wealthy, is going to leave Egypt Despite the fact that he's been unbelievably wicked to his wife and cowardly, God's going to make him grow in massive amounts of wealth to get all these, you know, flocks, sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, and he brings them, you know, male and female servants and camels like Abram's wealth is growing substantially because he betrayed his wife. What do you what do you do with that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But what, why do you think it does this? So, I mean, if you enter the story and you try to imagine, like really don't just read this as you know, words on a page. Imagine how crushing this would have been for Sarah. Imagine how scary. Imagine how yeah. all of that stuff. And so imagine it from her perspective when you're in the harem and you're about to be given to a man that you don't know, that you don't love, that you've never met, that you didn't consent to, and all of a sudden this God who came to Abram with promises – shows up and begins to fight for you. Hmm. Like, imagine how precious that would have been to her to see Pharaoh's house and everybody. By, by the way, you don't get sick, but everybody else who's threatening you gets sick, and now God has delivered you. Like, the the care that he shows to Sarah is so wonderful and tender. And it what it does is it gives you a prelude because you're asking the question, okay, I'm looking for a hero in the story, mm-hmm. and here I find Abraham, who is unwilling to lay down his life for his bride. Well, what does that make you hunger for? A real hero. A real hero. Somebody who is willing to lay down his life for the sake of his bride to keep him out of the chambers of the serpent king. Well, the very God who begins inflicting diseases upon Pharaoh and his house is going to take on flesh. And he's going to come into this world and he's going to chase after a bride that has been held captive by this serpent in a, in a land that is just ready to devastate her. And he comes and he's willing to lay down his life, not just to rescue Sarah, but to rescue the wicked, You know, like he he comes to redeem his people and to save his bride and to lay down his own life to redeem and rescue. And it's that's the nature of God. And you see it kind of shining through in the story where Abram fails. He is faithful. And so in verse eighteen, Pharaoh, who's kind of an innocent player in here, because remember he thinks it's Abr- Abram's sister. Of course, it's a wicked culture where you just kind of claim whatever. Yeah, woman I mean he's gross, but like, <laughs> yeah. but it's cult. I yeah. mean, he didn't know any better back then. That's just what you did. You yeah. know, I know cancel culture. He doesn't know, know God. He, yeah, we, we're going down. Here. His his statues are coming down. But but that's just that was culture back then. Go read some of the ancient law codes. Like you the the value of women or slave class servant class it's it's like they they they're meaningless i mean they're they're worthless it's it's stunning to read and so the fact that god shows up to defend the dignity of a woman and that ancient culture would have been radical radical but it shows you the heart of god it was radically different than the world of that day and so it says pharaoh summoned abram what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Just leave. Get out of here. Get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. <laughs> He's like scratching his boils. He's like, what you, why'd you do this? Uh, then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. And so only the favor of God would
1: let. If I'm Pharaoh, let that guy walk out with all of his possessions. Oh, completely. because I'd be, I'd be like these plagues you just hit me with. You can take your wife because I want her out of here and I want you out
0: of here. But I'm keeping the sheep and the donkeys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Taking it back. Yeah, the, and the I only. might send some assassins to follow yeah. you to 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 make right on this later. But it's amazing God actually uses the wickedness of Abraham to further His purposes. You know, and, and he intervenes to defend, and he is the one who emerges from this story as the hero, and you're left conflicted with Abraham. And, you know, one of the things that, that I love um, about this is it shows you, like when famine comes, there's, there's, a, there's a metaphor that you find all throughout the Bible, and it has to do with famines. Because you find famines like surprisingly frequent and the book of Genesis, every single patriarch comes across this bad famine, right? And they're faced with a decision. Do I trust God where he's called me or do I run away and go down to Egypt, right? Every time they run down to go to Egypt, bad things like this happen. Shameful periods happen. Isaac doesn't and he's blessed. But what happens when they go down to Egypt, do you know when they, when they finally get enslaved in Egypt, what they're enslaved to do? Because it's really instructive. We're meant to pick up on this. Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to find grain, and when Pharaoh finally enslaves the Israelites, you read this in, in Exodus chapter 1, they're enslaved to build storage cities. For hmm. what? What are they storing up? Grain. Grain. They're storing up grain. It was an outpost for their military so that they could take food with them on their way up out of Egypt from the land of Goshen. And so, and they, they've gone back to old Ramses and Pithom and they find massive silos uh, that are devoted to the storage of grain. It's really kind of fascinating. But anyway, so they're enslaved to storing up more. I've got to have more. I've got to protect. I've got to know what's coming tomorrow. I've got to build silos and grain. So it's, it becomes a slavery where they're always having to store up. And then when God delivers them from the land of Egypt, right, they're going out into a wilderness. And what are they saying? Oh, my gosh, I wish we were back in Egypt around our pots of meat. Like they're freaking out because they yeah. don't know what's coming tomorrow. And what does God do? How does he feed them? Manna. Manna, which is what? Bread grain how, and how often do you get it once a day once a day except for that yeah. day where you get double portion yeah right yeah. before the sabbath you get double portion so that you're There's not rules. working yeah but think about what that means like their slavery was storing up they just they were building storage cities and misery you know more 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 and servings someone else then god delivers them and says nope i'm not going to give you a big pile i'm not going to give you an overwhelming you know granary or silos filled with this stuff you're going to have to learn to trust. It's like he's putting them through a detox program, right? Yeah. Because what do we want to do? I mean, we it's the same thing. Like God has called us to something. We don't know how he's going to provide. And so what do we do? We run down to Egypt and we slave away needing more and more and more and more. And it's never enough. And we need more security. And, uh-huh. you know, the millionaire wants to become a billionaire. And, you know, like every, it's never enough. And we are slaving away our whole lives doing more and more. You were talking earlier about how you're glad you're not rich or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure I buy that, but because you know you couldn't trust yourself yeah. with wealth, and I am the same way. You just you'd slave away for more and more and more. And when God leads them out of Egypt, he puts them on a detox program where he says, "Nope, here is mm. one day in the middle of a desert, no other options. Here is another day. Oh, and I am going to be nice. Here is a quail, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> treat you know, yeah, a treat." But that's what he does. And so when Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say to us? Do not store up treasures on earth where moth eats and rust destroys, but store up your treasures in heaven. And then when he asks us to pray, he's hitting on this theme. Give us this day our Daily daily bread which is actually coming out of proverbs where he's quoting don't give me too much don't give me too little but give me my daily bread. So when you pray that, you might not know it, but what you're asking for is, you know, don't don't leave me starving. Yeah, then I become a beggar yeah. or I steal. Yeah, or I steal. But also don't give me too much cuz I'll totally walk away from you and think that I'm my own savior. That's the heart of that prayer. And that's that's a theme that you find at, like object lessons throughout the book of of Genesis and into Exodus, and by the way, into the story of Ruth. Remember how that book starts? The first sentence is, there was a famine in the land. And so what does Ruth's mother-in-law do? Flee's, she flees the place that God has called her, which, by the way, is Bethlehem, which means house, house of bread. bread very, yep. And they run to Moab, and everybody dies, and they come back, and it turns out the famine wasn't so bad, and that God had cared for everybody, wow. and, and like... That's kind of the idea when famine comes. Now of course you in a real world you you need to feed your family. But this is this is using it as a as a lesson like if God has called you to something and it feels empty and desolate and like famine is there, don't run away from where God has called you because he will provide for you. It might be one day at a time. Hmm. But if you abandon that and you try to store up and you try to slave away to, to make sure that you're safe and secure, your life will turn into a misery, a slavery.
1: Yeah, because we believe freedom is found in excess in our world. Oh, completely. But here, and obviously like you just pointed out so detailed, like the biblical ethic is freedom is found in trust in God only. Mm-hmm. Like that is the only place where we're truly free without worry, without anxiety, mm-hmm. without
0: all of that. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's all through the Bible. Proverbs, yep. you know, the, the wealthy imagine their wealth as a fortified city. It's not yeah. like it, it's, it's, it's just not. It's all an illusion and it can be stripped away from you tomorrow. And if your ultimate security is found in anything other than God, all of that stuff could be mm. stripped away. God can never be stripped away. So if your ultimate security is him, you have ultimate security. Wow. Everything else perishes and even if it doesn't in your lifetime the grave is certain to strip it away from you guaranteed <laughs> you're not taking wealth and cars and you're not taking grain you're not taking nothing with you when you die so if you do not have the lord the ultimate security you don't have security yeah i mean let's just let's just get right down to it so this is going to be the first time where we see that famine paradigm that you're going to see through the rest of scripture and here's the irony God blesses Abraham with a massive amount of wealth, right? As he's leaving Pharaoh, he's he's just gotten infused with a massive amount of wealth. And the very next chapter, when we get to Abraham and Lot separating, which we'll talk about next week, we find that that wealth actually becomes a little bit of a curse upon Abram. And God is showing you that if wealth becomes your ultimate, goal your ultimate aim it will destroy you and it will destroy the community in which you're living so we will talk about that next week well thank you so much for joining us today it was it's fun to jump into the life of Abraham he's such a such a incredible figure uh, and so fun to study and even more fun to see God's faithfulness through his life and all of his failures and triumphs we serve a God who never fails and that is a great encouragement to people who fail frequently. (laughs) So as we move forward, if you have questions, you know, shoot emails to us. You can reach me at sam at riovistachurch.com. You can reach Will at will at riovistachurch.com. Let us know what you're thinking. If you have questions, if there's there's parts of the story of Abraham that bug you, that you really want us to address, let us know. If there's, you know, archaeological stuff, historical stuff that you have questions with, like that's the, we love that stuff. Will's rolling his eyes right now. (laughs) (laughs) But we would love to hear from you or where you'd like for us to go next after we finish this series on Abram. We'd ask you to like and subscribe to our podcast on all the different platforms. Uh, That just helps people to find us. And it's encouraging to us to see good ratings. So please don't be mean. Right? Please. (laughs) So thanks so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. We will see you next week on the Out of Water Podcast.